good morning. So the spotlight was redirected for the event we had here last Friday so that it is now shining right about the second step. So I'm going to stay in the dark a little bit, which is to your advantage, I think, if I do that. But I think you can hear me. You can get hearing assistance in the back, as Butch mentioned. We do not have earplugs for those who don't want to listen. You're on your own to bring those. <clears throat> Although, because we are men, I think I have found that we're pretty good at selective hearing anyway, so we're only going to hear what we want to hear. Pretty much is the truth. So we're back in 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 3 today. It's kind of the midpoint of the letter. It will be by the time we finish uh, the verses we're looking at, 6 to 13 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Kind of the midpoint of the letter, and we, we pick it up where we find that, that Paul, the apostle who writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica, well, he's worried. He's concerned. Now, Paul wasn't always worried. He's not a worry wart. He doesn't worry about everything. He's selective in his worrying. There are certain things that Paul would find worrisome. If I were in Paul's shoes, getting beaten up a lot, being sent to jail, being shipwrecked, I'd find most of those things kind of worrisome. That's not what seems to worry Paul. He gets worried about other things. So we're going to see what he's worried about. But his worry is, is selective because he trusts God for everything in life. And we're to do the same, right? We're to trust God as we're following Christ. But we can worry. And a lot of times we worry about things that don't matter. And it helps when we have someone come alongside. Sometimes it's our wives. Sometimes it's someone else who remind us not to worry about certain things. Like in the big picture of life, it doesn't really matter which team wins on most given Sundays or Saturdays. In the big picture. But we still worry about it because we're loyal to the things we're loyal to. Paul the Apostle was loyal to the churches he was planting. He's going around Asia Minor and now Greece and he's planting churches, which means he's, he's going around proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He starts in synagogues, most usually. He begins to talk about the history of Israel. He gets to the point of explaining to the people in the synagogues and the cities where he's visiting that the Messiah that they wait for has come. His name is Jesus. And oftentimes, the result is that some people believe, but others don't. And sometimes there is a reaction to what he says. So remember when he went to Thessalonica, there was a reaction to what he said. He had some success. He planted the church, but then some got upset. And some in the city even said that Paul was bringing a message with other men that were with him. He was with Silas and Timothy. That they were literally, the, the words were, turning the world upside down. Well, I think Greek people must like to speak in hyperbole a little bit. Was Paul's message and was Paul really turning the world upside down? Well, maybe not hyperbole, because in reality, for many who believed, it turned their world upside down. For those who didn't, it would also turn their world upside down, because Jesus and the gospel is, is the stumbling block that people will stumble over, or the rock that will fall on them, is what Paul says in another place. So we get to chapter 3, verse 6. And, well, church, verse 5, first. Remember, this is what Paul had said at the, it, where we left off last time, two weeks ago. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy. He sent Timothy. He wants to learn about what's going on. He wants to learn about their faith. 
for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul's worried that what had happened in Thessalonica, he came, he proclaimed the gospel, people believed, the church was planted, as we say, but they didn't stay long. There was kind of the threat of violence. A reaction was happening in the city. So it was decided that, that Paul and his associates should be escorted out of town, and they left. And they went on to Berea, we know next, and similar thing happened there as well. It ends up that he finds himself in Athens, and at this point he's kind of concerned what's going on in Thessalonica. Are the, are the Christians there who were, who were undergoing a persecution right away, even before he left, are they hanging in there? Are they still believing? Because reality is that not every church plant succeeds. Sometimes they don't. Now, I don't know what the figure is. Wes White, our missions pastor, could probably tell us. Some years ago, it was suggested among churches that 80% of church plants fail. 80%, which is not true. I don't know who came up with that number, but I, I'm thinking it was not a good number. I think Satan came up with that number. I mean, that's a discouraging number. You're not going to go plant a church if you've got an 80% chance of failing. But the reality is that some churches and some denominations keep better track than others. The North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, they keep good numbers on everything. <laughs> Wes would know that. <laughs> they, they, they know everything, and they've kept good numbers, and they found that really it's not that high a number at all, and that at least at a certain time period in the, in the about five years ago, they had taken a three-year sample of church plants in North America that were Southern Baptist, and they found that 68% of them were still going three to five years later. So that's a, that's a pretty good success rate, 68%. But even at 68%, that means that there's some church plants that don't work. And that means that there have been literally hundreds of man hours, hundreds of thousands of dollars poured into church plants that fail. And there's a lot of literature on what causes church plants to fail. Uh, there's a man who is a campus minister at Drexel University in Philadelphia who has a blog site. And I want to share what he wrote recently. He, he came up with the 10 reasons why the Apostle Paul failed as a church planner. Now, there's some tongue-in-cheek here, just to remind you of that, right? Okay, number 10, he goes, works down. Paul failed as a church planner because, number 10, none of the churches he planted still exist today. They all died. Where is his legacy? <laughs> number 9, there are several communities that he tried to plant a church in, and they never succeeded. We have no record that Paul actually planted or was successfully planting churches in Lystra or Derby, Athens. We're not sure that a church was planted there. There's probably more towns as well. I mean, his entire life was about church planting, and he had failures. So that's a, he's, maybe he wasn't a great church planter. Number eight, he allowed himself to get involved in church politics and controversies over requirements of Jewish believers putting on Gentile believers. Just think how much more effective he would have been if he hadn't had to make those trips back to headquarters in Jerusalem to set them straight about how to plant a church. Number seven, his church planting team split over personnel issues. It did happen. Paul and Barnabas split, remember. I've heard Wes say on more than one occasion that the biggest challenge missionaries face on the field isn't the field, it's the team they work with. It's having relationships that keep going. Number six, None of Paul's church plants ever reached the key 300 size number within three years. Kind of a measurement that some church denominations use. 
Number five, none of the church plants that Paul developed ever became financially independent with at least $15,000 in the bank at the end of three years. How many of them even had a building? I mean, really. (laughs) Number four, at least one of his church plants, the one in Corinth, had severe relational and moral issues. Didn't Paul ever buy any discipleship curriculum? Number three, Paul lacked visionary foresight because he invested huge amount of time and energy, two years in Ephesus, for instance, in a town that no longer even exists. Who did his strategic planning for him? You don't plan a church in a town that's not going to be there 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 years later. <clears throat> oh, well. Number two, after he left, several of the church plants were susceptible, were susceptible to heretical beliefs. Paul writes, remember, to one of the churches, you foolish Galatians, how could you dot, dot, dot. That happens. Church plants have those challenges. And then the number one reason we know that Paul wasn't the most effective church planner is that none of the churches he planted ever had enough money to bring him on full-time as their pastor. (laughs) Nor did they have enough money to hire a worship pastor or a youth pastor. Surely the sign of a church plant failure. Now, the guy who wrote this was, was taking kind of our modern-day view of church planting, which what is a successful church plant in our view? They've got a building, they've got a big budget, they've got a lot of programs, they've got some staff. Did any of that matter to Paul? No, none of it did. When Paul was planting churches, he was interested in finding people who would go the long haul with Jesus who would face opposition because he knew it was coming, who could take the persecution and still stand. So when he thinks about the the believers he left back in Thessalonica, he's wondering, how are they doing? Well, he didn't know because they hadn't been posting on Facebook. (laughs) There was nothing on their Instagram account. They weren't tweeting anything out about their faithfulness. He didn't know. He couldn't read about it anywhere. So the only thing that Paul could do is to send Timothy to find out. And that's what happened. So he sends Timothy. Now, Paul and Timothy are in Athens with Silas. He sends Timothy up north. Sorry, I don't have slides today to show you what that looks like. Uh, I don't have that wonderful slide that I should have gotten Hunter's slide and could have drawn some cool things. So you know a map in your head, right? Athens is down here. Thessalonica's up there, okay? You got that? You're good. So he sends Timothy up there. It's, a, it's a quite a walk to go that way. We're not exactly sure how many miles it would be to walk, but if you drove it today, it would take you a little while. Uh, to walk it back then, it was at least 250 miles. So Timothy's got to walk from Athens to Thessalonica, 250 miles. That's going to take him a little time, probably two weeks. If he walks 20 miles a day, he's going to take him a couple weeks. And then he's going to have to go into town and find the people and relate to them, at least spend a few days, probably a week. If I had just walked 250 miles, I don't want to turn around and walk again. And then he's got to walk back another two weeks. So Paul's going to be waiting at least six weeks to get message back. And that's where we we hear him or see him here. He's kind of worried. He's sent Timothy. He's trying to figure out what's going on in the church. Is the church even there anymore? Have they given up the faith? Has opposition overcome them? And so he waits, and he's, he's fearing the worst, but he's going to get the best news he's had in a good long time. And that's where we'll read, and finally, I will read the scripture this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 6 to 13. He says this, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, 
and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. You've got to remember that Paul writes this from Corinth. So when he sent Timothy up to Thessalonica, Silas went off to Macedonia. Paul went over to Corinth by himself. And so he's in this town of Corinth starting to plant the church and worried about what's going up up north. But he gets, he gets the message. And then he says in verse 8, for now we live, or your version might even say, for now we really live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your, for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul was worried about what was going on in Thessalonica. Part of what he worried about, you can pick up, is not just whether they were keeping the faith. He was also worried about what they thought of him. They were concerned that maybe they would be, he was concerned that they would be upset, that perhaps they had sort of forgotten about him, that perhaps they were upset that he left them in the lurch because it could have felt that way. It could have felt like he had just left them in a place that was hard for them. So Timothy shows up and brings good news. Paul says, you brought us, he brought us the good news. And he, the word he uses there is used everywhere else where it's used in the New Testament. It's used to, to talk about proclaiming the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy showed up and proclaimed the gospel to me. Well, he isn't saying he, he, he told me what Jesus is about. He, he, he says the good news of your faithfulness is just like the good news of the gospel in my heart. It's that kind of impact on me. I think it's John Stott who says of this that, that Timothy evangelized Paul with, with news of what was going on in Thessalonica. It was that good. So he uses this word. And his report is, is all about Thessal the Thessalonians' faith and love. And it's no surprise. Remember, Paul starts this letter to the church in Thessalonica talking about how great their faith is and how great their love is and how sure their hope is. And now that he's heard of it, he focuses on the faith and love that they have for one another. It's the, the theologian reformer John Calvin who said that faith and love really are the sum total of godliness. If we have faith and love together, that's a sure sign of God working in our lives, and that's true. So Timothy reports that this, you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So for Paul, it's, whew, they're not upset that I left. They don't feel like I left them in the lurch or I abandoned them or gave them up. They still want to see me and hear from me. It doesn't always happen that way. You know, in 2017, Missouri played Texas in the, uh, what was called the Texas Bowl. And Missouri, right before the, the, this bowl game, lost their two coordinators, the offense and defensive coordinators. They took jobs, head coaching jobs at other schools. And because of that, they felt like it wouldn't be appropriate for them to, to be on the sideline with Missouri for the bowl game. Well, Missouri got 
got beaten 33 to 16, something like that. One of Missouri's best players was an offensive lineman. Um, he was pretty good, Marcel Frazier. He was pretty outspoken. And after the game, after the loss, he threw those two departed associate head coaches under the bus. <laughs> he said, the reason we lost is that we were abandoned. Our coaches left us. He said it this way, they left us in a bad position. They let a whole bunch of teenage boys, 18 and 19 year olds down. That's what it felt like. You know, Paul was worried that that's what the Thessalonians, would, the church there would feel about him. You let us down. You gave us the gospel and you hit the road. A little development of persecution happened and you took off. But he's so heartwarmed by the fact that they didn't feel that way. They still loved him. They still cared for him. And so in verse 7, he says, In our distress and our affliction, and because Paul has had some distress and affliction, I remind you of where he's been on this trip so far. As Paul and his associates have traveled around, they were beaten, they were jailed, they were defamed in Philippi, they were persecuted and expelled in Thessalonica and in Berea. Paul was rejected and scorned in Athens, and now he's in Corinth, and when he goes to Corinth, he says this, I came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. You get a sense for what Paul's feeling inside. So no wonder when he heard good news from the church that he had planted in Thessalonica that these people are still faithful and they still care for him. It warms his heart. So much so that in verse 8 he says, for now we live, or for now we really live, if you are standing firm in the Lord or fast in the Lord. Think for a minute. You know, what is it that would take for you to say, now I'm really living? I mean, now, now I'm really living. Now, Honestly, for most of us, it's the, the latest toy we have, whatever gadget we have. Or maybe it's a new car, or maybe it's something else. I mean, I'm expecting the first, I'm not expecting, by the way, my, uh, two of my daughters expecting children, the first two grandchildren for us. We know that for those of you who have grandchildren, we hear it's great. And there's part of us that's saying, well, man, this is now we're really going to live. We're going to have grandchildren. We've been waiting for a while. We've been wondering, don't they know how to do this? <laughs> I mean, what's the deal? <laughs> Well, two out of the three have figured it out, so we're going to have two grandchildren, both in June. So, you know, that would be enough to say, that's going to be a real highlight, I think. But Paul says, now I really live because I know you're standing firm in the faith. Boy, that says something about his commitment to the church, his commitment to believers, to brothers and sisters in the faith. Now I really live. What, what's it going to take for you to say, now I really live? Well, for Paul, it was that. It was the, the thing that was most important on his heart. And in his distress and affliction, he can say, in spite of all that, it's worth it all. Now I'm really living because you're being faithful. And he points out their steadfastness of hope. And that's a sure sign of Christ having entered into someone's life. That in the midst of opposition, there is a steadfastness of hope. There's a belief that Jesus is in my life, and that he has something going on that is going to go all the way to the end. Because remember that this letter was really about how we can wait well for the return of the Lord. The Thessalonian church had to do that right away. Wait well for the return of the Lord. They're hoping he's coming any time. But they're steadfast in hope, and they're still waiting. And then he says in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel before, for your sake, before our God. 
or the way the message put it, Eugene Peterson, what would be an adequate thanksgiving to offer God for all the joy we experience before him because of you? Now, why is Paul concerned about that? Well, part of it is the fact that we are called to be thankful in all things, that part of our experience of God is thankfulness to him for all the gifts he gives us. But there is another part, and that is the Greek and Roman culture that Paul is working in had a high value of, of, of believing that you should receive gifts and then be reciprocal and, and give gifts, and gifts of thanksgiving, that that's an important part of, of life together. That was a very high value in Greek and Roman culture. We know that not just from verses like this, but we know it from, from other writers, like the philosopher uh, Seneca, the Roman philosopher who lived in the first century, who had some really good advice on how to live life. He was not a Christian that we know of, but he had some good advice. He wrote this, if you wish to be loved, love. That sounds like a good word. <laughs> Makes sense to me. He also wrote, if one does not know to which port one is calling, no wind is favorable. Think about that one. <laughs> If you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter. It makes sense. He said this too, and I like this. He said, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. So this is Seneca. So this is a thoughtful fellow, a philosopher, a speaker. But then he, when he came to recipro reciprocity, this is what he said. Not to return gratitude for benefits is a disgrace, and the whole world counts it as such. Paul has received what he says is an amazing gift. And the gift is simply this. Timothy has shown back up and said, the church in Thessalonica exists. It's still going. In the midst of persecution, it's surviving. And Paul is grateful for the gift. And he's, he asks the question, I don't, how do you be thankful? How do I express thanksgiving to God for this wonderful gift? And he doesn't say, he doesn't answer his rhetorical question. But Seneca answered the question, because he also wrote words like this, I shall never be able to repay you my gratitude, but at any rate, and I don't know what he was talking about, but this is what he said, at any rate, I shall not cease from declaring everywhere that I am unable to repay it. You see, that's what Paul is doing. Paul has just said, unceasingly, we're still reading these words today, that he does not know how to repay to God the thankfulness he feels that God has persevered the church in Thessalonica. And so he gets to verse 10 and he begins to pray. That's a normal thing for Paul to pray. Sometimes he prays out loud in his letters. He writes it down. Sometimes he, he prays quietly, but he prays and he says, as we pray most earnestly, night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's praying two things for the church in Thessalonica. He wants to see them face to face. He prays it, the word is most earnestly in English. It's, the Greek word is a strong, strong desire. It's the most important thing. It's number one priority. Paul is praying. He wants to see them face to face. He wants to be with them. He wants to have fellowship. Why does he want to do that? He says he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. He wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. He wants to, to put in order, to restore. That word can mean a couple different things. To make complete. It's been described this way by commentators. It's like a fisherman wanting to repair the hole in the net. It's like the surgeon who wants to reset the bones so they're in proper alignment. 
It's that kind of thought that Paul has in mind. It's like a politician wanting to reconcile factions that aren't getting together. Wait a minute, the politicians really care about that? <laughs> Maybe that's not a good illustration. But the thing is that Paul knows the church in Thessalonica has gaps in their faith. And he was only with them a little bit of time. I'm sure he taught them well. But they don't know everything. They don't have the New Testament. They don't have any of Paul's letters yet until this one. And he wants to set straight some thoughts and some things that he knows they're struggling with. What are those? Do we know? We know a few of them from what he writes in his letters. We've already seen a little bit. We'll see more as we go through 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. That they had some confusion about what it would look like when Jesus came back. They had some confusion about what death looks like. They had some confusion about how important work is. Because if Jesus is coming back soon, why work? <laughs> I knew that was coming. They had some challenging sexual ethics. Some of their sexuality was not quite up to par in terms of what God has in mind for human sexuality. So he wanted to correct those things. He wanted to set them straight. Uh, he wanted to complete what is lacking in their faith. And so he longs to be able to do that. And then in verses 11 to 13, he says, Now may our God and Father himself. And so what Paul does is he ends this section of the letter, and this is kind of a midpoint of his letter. And sometimes when Paul writes, he'll, he'll insert like a little doxology. Now may the God of grace grant you. But here he doesn't insert so much a doxology as a prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see Paul's clear understanding that Jesus is God, he is Lord. May he direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. May he establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So he makes this last prayer. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Now, this is a church that he has already said, you are the, kind of the highlight of what love looks like, of all the churches that you all understood this. And so Paul's not content with that. He wants their love to increase all the more. Why would he want that? Well, for a couple reasons. You sure get along better if you love one another, right? If you take it seriously. You also demonstrate to the watching world what Christ is like by the way we love one another. But the word he uses here is agape. It's that highest form of love, that kind of love that we can't generate on our own. It's the kind of love that we have to depend on God to have. It's the kind of love, agape love, which is only comes if God grants it. No wonder he prays for it. The only way the church in Thessalonica will have agape love is if God gives it to them. And so he prays that they would have it, that they would increase in it more and more. It would be a blessing to all around them. And then he wants their hearts to be established, blameless in holiness. He's probably thinking somewhat about moral purity. I mean, he is in Corinth as he writes this, we think. If you remember what's going on in Corinth, moral purity wasn't one of the characteristics of that city. He wants that to be a characteristic of the church everywhere, particularly in Thessalonica. So he prays for it. He prays that it would be going on, continuing. He's praying for their sanctification. They're growing in likeness to Jesus in their life and character. He knows how hard that can be. And remember, Paul was also a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
Paul understood that outward holiness, behavior-wise, certain behavior can look holy, but it does no guarantee whatsoever that there is inner holiness. I mean, think about the Pharisees. They were the best at keeping the law outwardly. But I don't remember many kind words about them in the Gospels, about their inner purity. It was lacking. So Paul prays for that, that they'll have, this church will have moral purity that's not just an outward veneer, but it's an inside job that the Holy Spirit is working in their lives. Because if that's happening, they're going to be growing more and more in Christ-likeness, and the church is going to be growing more and more in its witness to God. That's Paul's words. We have a few minutes to talk about one thing around our tables. Here's the question for this morning, guys. And I thought there were several that came out of here, but one that I would love us to think about and to share is this. How have you experienced the kind of love Paul talks about in a church setting? Whatever church it's been. Maybe this church. Doesn't have to be. (laughs) How have you ever experienced the kind of love that Paul is praying that the Thessalonian church would experience? The question really is then, where's the love? And is it in the church? Well, may it be, and may it be in our lives. So as we close, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Amen.